Well, we are in Kings, the book of Kings. It's broken into two books, first and second Kings. And we are in second Kings, the last part, chapter 23. So we're very close to the end of this book. Just two more chapters after today. Second Kings 23. If you have a Bible, as always, invite you to open there. Find your place. Second Kings chapter 23. I'll also read this text in just a moment. We begin this morning, however, with a flashback, a flashback 300 years prior to the events that we're going to read about in 2 Kings 23, a flashback all the way back in the book of Kings to when the nation of Israel was split, remember, into those two kingdoms, this map that we've used many times, just gives you a visual This goes back 300 years to the time when the nation was split between Israel up in the north and Judah in the south. And it was split because of the sin of Solomon. This was part of God's discipline and judgment. And the first king of the northern, now new northern nation called, just called Israel, the ten tribes of Israel. The first king, as you again see his picture there, was Jeroboam. And if you remember, Jeroboam set up these alternative means of worship for the people of Israel so that they did not have to go down to Jerusalem and the temple. He set up these high places. He built two golden calves, if you remember, and he put one up in Dan and one in the city of Bethel that you see there on the map. And he constructed altars where the people could go to worship there. And he perverted the worship of Yahweh. He's the first king, and it sets the trajectory for Israel for their whole 209 history, years of history. While he is at that altar, that he himself, he appoints priests, but he himself presides over the altar in Bethel. And while he is instituting this new form of worship at Bethel, while in the midst of it, We read this in 1 Kings chapter 13. I'll put it on the screen. This goes way back, if you remember these events. 1 Kings 13. I said this is 300 years prior to the events of our chapter. It says, Now behold, there came a man of God from Judah to Bethel by the word of Yahweh, while Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense. He's at this altar. And he, the man of God, cried against the altar by the word of Yahweh and said, O altar, altar, thus says Yahweh, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. And on you he shall sacrifice the priest of the high places who burn incense on you and human bones shall be burned on you. Then he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which Yahweh has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be split apart, and the ashes which are on it shall be poured out. Do you remember that word? And that happens just shortly after that altar is split as a sign that what I'm saying here is going to come to pass. The other interesting thing about this account, if you you remember this, chapter 13 is one of my favorite chapters in all of Kings because it is so... Bizarre, (laughs) interesting, it's really crazy story. But you remember that man of God who came and spoke this word gets eaten by a lion. Remember that? He gets killed by a lion because he disobeyed God and he got tricked by another prophet and he gets the end. He gets killed 
And then that other prophet who tricked him, remember he came and took his body and brought him back there to his house near Bethel and buried him in his own grave. And he told his sons that when I die, I want you to bury me with him. Bury me with him in that grave. And that other prophet was identifying with this prophet and all of that kind of crazy happenings. Why he wanted that was because of this. This is the verse 32 of chapter 13. Again, I'll put it on the screen. This is what that other prophet said. He said, for the thing shall surely come to pass, which he, that man of God, cried by the word of Yahweh against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places, which are in the cities of Samaria. It will surely come to pass. bury me with him because his word is true. And this is surely going to come to pass. So that's our flashback. Now let's move forward 300 years, 300 years to our text this morning in 2 Kings. And when we read back to chapter 22, verse 1, where this account started, we read these words, Josiah was eight years old when he became king and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Here he is. Now, we have likely forgotten about that word so many chapters ago. Did you remember that word? So many chapters ago, so long. We've likely forgotten about that, but God has not forgotten. He's not forgotten. His word always comes to pass precisely, exactly. It's been 300 years, but his word, and here he names the person, 300 years prior he doesn't just say a son of david he says josiah by name so when we read josiah became king our antennas are up that word that he spoke will be fulfilled god's word is always fulfilled exactly exactly now at this point in the story that northern kingdom of israel that jeroboam was the first king of that northern kingdom is gone They've been judged by God. They've been exiled to Assyria. They no longer exist. That land has been repopulated with many foreign peoples who have pagan altars. But guess what's still there in that land? That altar that Jeroboam built. So again, we might be thinking, well, that kingdom's gone. God's word didn't come to pass. It's coming to pass. God's word always comes to pass exactly. So we pick up the story now here. Now, if, if you're new with us or if you're visiting with us this morning, as I said, we as a church have been looking at the book of Kings for more than a year, just going through it chapter by chapter. And this book recounts the history of Israel, the nation of Israel. They are God's people, his covenant people. They are in the land of Canaan, that promised land, even that we sang of. And it's during this period that they were ruled by various kings for about 400 plus years. That's what this book covers. 400 years of their history under various kings. And the book is overall depressing, isn't it? It's pretty depressing because most of those kings were not good kings. They're like Jeroboam. They followed in his steps. Most of them were unfaithful and they led the people into idolatry and to forsake the Lord. And the Lord has been delaying his judgment. 
but has finally brought it up in the north. And as I said, has removed the nation of Israel. They are completely gone. Judah's heading in the same direction, the southern kingdom. So most of the kings are not good. But every once in a while, occasionally, we are introduced to a good king down in the south, a faithful king. And that's what we have in Josiah. Josiah. He's one of these. Now, his account is given over two chapters. And so last Sunday, we introduced to Josiah in chapter 22. And we saw that he's not only a good king. Josiah is the very best king that the nation has ever had. There's been no one like him before or no one like him after. He even surpasses David in his commendation here of his faithfulness, wholehearted faithfulness to the Lord. And that's all the more remarkable considering who his father and his grandfather were. (laughs) They were the worst kings the nation has ever seen. His father only reigned two years and then he was assassinated. That's why he comes to the throne at age eight, so young. But his grandfather, Manasseh, reigned for 55 years, the longest reign of any king of either nation. And he was the very worst king they ever had. And he plunged this nation of Judah into ruin. Where does Josiah come from, we wonder? Just God's grace. He continues his promise to David to provide yet another king. So last Sunday, we were introduced to Josiah in the chapter 22. And we saw that the main event, the main event of that chapter was the discovery of the book. Remember that? The book in the temple. The book of the law, the book of the covenant, which would be kind of equivalent to our book of Deuteronomy. He discovered it and everything changes when he discovers the book. So last Sunday, we thought on Josiah's response to the book, to the word of God. And how he is a model for us. His tender heart towards God's word. His, his immediate obedience and contrition. His life was shaped by the book. And I said last week, I hope, I pray that our lives would be shaped by the book. The word of God. Josiah is a model of that. Now that continues on to chapter 23. This is our chapter this morning. In Josiah's reformation. His reformation. That's what we want to see this morning. Josiah's reformation. And really this reformation is the heart of the account of Josiah. This reformation is the display of his covenant obedience. Unlike anything we have ever seen in the Old Testament. It is radical, it is thorough, it is uncompromised, his reformation. And that's the focus here in chapter 23. It gives verse after verse after verse of what he does in covenant faithfulness. So look at chapter 23 with me. And I want to read this chapter down to verse 30. But remember verses 1 through 3. Let me just reread them. I actually read them last week because he begins... Not with reformation here. He actually begins with a covenant renewal ceremony. Remember, they've discovered the book. He's read the book. He's struck to the heart by the book because he knows God's judgment is coming. And so in chapter 23 now, the king, it says in verse 1, he gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He gets 
everybody in Judah there in Jerusalem. And he went up to the house of the Lord. He went up to the temple and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him and the priest and the people, prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of Yahweh. So he reads the book. Everybody needs to hear it. The whole nation. And then verse three, it says, and the king stood by the altar or by the pillar. It's one of those pillars outside the temple. And he made a covenant before Yahweh to walk after Yahweh and to keep his commandments, his testimonies, his statues with all his heart and with all his soul. And to carry out the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people entered into the covenant. So this is a covenant renewal ceremonies like Moses when he first inaugurates this covenant well here he's renewing it and they enter in and they're promising to follow the Lord with heart and soul and might and strength that's right out of the words of the book of Deuteronomy and that's what he does his whole life and the people enter in so we saw that last week this renewal of the covenant and now comes his reformation so let's just keep reading here there's a lot here As I read this section here of his reformation, notice that Josiah, the king, is the sole actor. He's the subject of every verb. (laughs) That's not that he did everything, obviously others, but he's in charge here. This is him leading this. In fact, I counted 30 plus verbs, action verbs that he is the subject of in this chapter. So it's very thorough. He leaves literally no stone unturned. And we want to hear it. I'm going to read it to you because I want you, I think the author's point is to have the overall effect of it. We won't have time to look at all the details of his reformation, but just to hear it, how thorough, how complete, how extensive, how radical this is, his reformation. As I said, there's nothing else like it in the Old Testament. So let's start. Verse four, then the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest and the priest of the second order and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of Yahweh all the vessels that were made for Baal for Asherah and all the host of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he did away with the idolatrous priest whom the kings of Judah, his forefathers, had appointed to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah in the surrounding area of Jerusalem. Also those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and to the moon and to the constellations and to all the host of heaven. And he brought out the Asherah. Remember, Manasseh put the Asherah right in the temple. He brought out the Asherah from the house of Yahweh outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron. And he burned it at the brook Kidron. And he ground it to dust and threw its dust on the graves of the common people. He also broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes, which were in the house of Yahweh, where the women were weaving hangings for the Asherah. Then he brought all the priests from the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priest had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates, which were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on the ones left at the city gate. Nevertheless, the priests of the high places did not go up to the altar of Yahweh in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. He also defiled Tophet. Tophet just means a place of burning which is in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire for Moloch. 
and he did away with the horses. Now, this is probably a some kind of statue, some kind of uh, monument here. The horses which the kings of Judah had given to the sun, is to the sun god, part of their worship, at the entrance of the house of Yahweh by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the official, which was in the precincts, and he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. And the altars which were on the roof, the upper chamber of Ahaz, this goes all the way back to Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, of the temple. The king broke down, and he ran from there, and he threw the dust into the brook Kidron. And the high places which were before Jerusalem, which were on the right of the Mount of Destruction, it's probably the Mount of Olives, he calls it the Mount of Destruction, which Solomon, Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the sons of Ammon, the king defiled. And he broke in pieces the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherim and filled their places with human bones. Now watch what he does. Verse 15. That's all, that's all in Jerusalem and Judah. And now he's going to go north. <laughs> Furthermore, the altar. So remember what we read earlier. The altar that was at Bethel. And the high places which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin, had made, even that altar and the high place he broke down. He demolished its stones, ground them to dust, and burned the Asherah. Now when Josiah turned, he saw the graves that were there on the mountain. Those are probably the graves of the priest. And he sent and he took the bones from the graves and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of Yahweh, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these things. Then he said, what is this monument that I see? And the men of the city said, it is the grave of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things which you have done against the altar of Bethel. And he said, let them alone. Let no one disturb his bones. So they left his bones undisturbed with the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. And Josiah also removed all the houses of the high places which were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made provoking Yahweh. And he did to them just as he had done in Bethel. And all the priests of the high places who were there, he slaughtered on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Then the king commanded all the people saying, celebrate the Passover to Yahweh your God as it is written in the book of the covenant. Surely such a Passover had not been celebrated from the days of the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was observed to Yahweh in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah removed the mediums and the spiritists and the teraphim and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might confirm the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of Yahweh. And before him, there was no king like him who turned to Yahweh with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, nor did anything like him, nor did any king like him arise after him. Stop there. That's thorough, isn't it? As I said, we're meant to just have the overall effect. No stone unturned. He eradicated every form of idolatry in both Judah and what used to be Israel. There's no one like this. No one else like this in the Old Testament who does it to this scale. Now, we can't look at all the details of what he did, but here's, here's the big takeaway. Here's the one line. 
What you're supposed to see of Josiah is a singular, exclusive commitment to the worship of Yahweh. A singular, exclusive commitment to the worship of Yahweh. Right? All, all his reforms are dealing with aberrant, idolatrous worship. These aren't social reforms. These aren't better men of the community. It all has to do with the worship of Yahweh and the aberrant, idolatrous forms. That's what his reformation, it's a worship reformation is what he's doing. That's what he's focused on because his heart is exclusively committed to Yahweh and to his word. And he takes this radical action and does away with all competing, aberrant, idolatrous forms. And he does it all according to the book. The chapters kind of, or the accounts kind of brought to a close with reference again in verse 25 to that book, or verse 24, to the book they discovered. This is his wholehearted obedience, isn't it? Uncompromised. What an extensive reformation. Hmm. He begins with the temple, that centerpiece of the worship of Yahweh, and he just moves out through Jerusalem, Judah, and then even to the north. And by it, you see just how dark things were in Judah and Jerusalem, don't you? You see just how much evil Manasseh had brought to this nation. Even the temple itself has been defiled and he has to cleanse it. In fact, not just Manasseh, but he goes all the way back to Solomon. To Ahaz and Saul. So this is taking us all the way back to the book of Kings. Remember Solomon, that great son of David who he had hoped was the one, that wise son, and yet ended so poorly with his multitude of wives, and he built all those altars, those idols for his wives, and he names it. They're still there. They're still there after these hundreds of years, and he demolishes all of them. That's how thorough he is. Now, I'll just... As I said, we don't have time to go through all the details. You can read through some of that. It is really tremendous reading as you read through it, if not very stark and startling. I'll just note these three, three observations here, just by kind of way a bigger overview. These three things, observations, notes. One, this Reformation was not just a destruction, but a defilement of pagan shrines. Did you notice that? He doesn't just tear them down, he defiles them. And the way you defile them is by contact with human bones. Because under the law, contact with human bones makes one unclean. And so that's what his action is. We kept reading that. He's throwing the dust on human bones. He's burning human bones on the altar. We say, why is he doing it? It's not just because he's like really, really intense guy. You can really make sure this is ground up. No, it's, it's a symbolic act of defilement. Defilement by sowing with human bones renders these abominations unusable. So you don't just rebuild them. That's the symbolic gesture that's going on here. So it's, it's not just a destruction, it's a defilement. He wants to rid the whole land of any notion of idolatry. That's how complete it is. Second observation, as we noted, his reformation includes Jeroboam's altar at Bethel in the high places of the cities of Samaria. So he, he doesn't stop just in Judah and Jerusalem. He crosses the border and goes up into what used to be Israel. Because so much of their pagan altars are still there. Remember, the people that came, they just adapted them. 
They just took over these altars. This is great. They're already built for us, the high places, and they, they just used them. But Jeroboam's altar from 300 years plus is still there. And he deals with it. He deals with it. Why, why does he go up here? Well, because it's all the promised land. Even though Israel's not there anymore, it's all God's land that is the promised land of Canaan. And so he's going to root out as much as he can, even all the idolatrous shrines up in the north, even though Israel's no longer there. But again, we read in verse 16, and the author wants you to note it. We saw the flashback, but in case you forgot, he reminds us that he did this. He broke, he burned, he smashed the altar, and he burned bones, human bones of those priests on the altar. And it says it there in verse 16. Don't miss it. According to the word of Yahweh, which the man of God proclaimed. That's all the way back to that chapter we read. He did it exactly. God's word is fulfilled exactly. Is he conscious that he is doing this? Maybe. I don't know. This is what he does. And it fulfills God's word. And then that interesting note where he sees that monument. What's that monument there? We're told, well, that's where that man of God was buried. And the other prophet by now has been buried with him. And he says, let him alone. Let him lie in peace. Again, there's so much, so much symbolism there, so much imagery there. There's, there's hope of future, right? There's a hint of hope, this resting in peace when you identify with the prophet of Yahweh. So don't burn their bones. So again, that takes us all the way back to that text. One last observation. Not just the destruction, not just all that he destroyed, but what they did positively, the Passover. They kept the Passover. This Passover celebration signaled the completeness of Josiah's reforms. This is the positive obedience. After destroying everything, all forms of idolatry, then we're told he comes back to Jerusalem and he says, celebrate the Passover. Why would he say that? Because it's in the book. It's in the book. Deuteronomy 16, 1 through 8, celebrate. So he's reading. We have to do this. This is just his heart of obedience here. But again, it signals kind of the, the thoroughness, the completeness of his, his reformation, his covenant renewal. Because you know what the Passover is, right? The Passover is supposed to be that yearly celebration where they remember what God had delivered them out of Egypt and he had made them his people. That was renewing the covenant. That was their celebration year by year to renew this covenant that God was their God by redemption that we are his people, that we walk according to his way. So when they keep this, it is signaling again their positive obedience. We are going to keep the covenant. And the author tells us there hasn't been any Passover like this since Joshua. Joshua 5 is the last Passover we read of. That's a long time ago, like 800 years. It hasn't been a Passover like this because now this Passover is celebrated in Jerusalem at the central sanctuary, according to the word of the Lord. It's the right use of the temple, these sacrifices that would be performed because he's cleansed the temple. And now, now sacrifices can begin and they start with the Passover, the sacrificial meal. So there's, there's his reformation. As I said, there's a lot here, isn't there? And no doubt... Josiah is a model worthy of our imitation in his uncompromised worship and his uncompromised obedience to the Lord. It's costly. It's thorough. It's extensive. And it's all done in conformity to the book.
the word of God. Much there to imitate. The Lord's speaking to your heart right now of compromise, of areas needing to live uncompromised like Josiah. It's costly. He is, in fact, as we get almost to the end of the Old Testament era, Josiah is, in many ways, the ideal Israelite under the Old Covenant. He embodies the essence of that Old Covenant. Deuteronomy chapter 6. He loved the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. What is the essence of the Old Covenant? What is the essence of the book of Deuteronomy? It's a wholehearted love for Yahweh that is expressed in obedience to Torah. To his commands. Yahweh has purchased you. He's redeemed you. That's the Passover Exodus. He's redeemed you. He's purchased you. The response is wholehearted love, heart, soul, mind, and strength to Yahweh. And the way that is seen is walking in his precepts, his commandments, his ways, the covenant. Josiah models it unlike anybody else. He's the ideal. So there's so much, there is much to learn from Josiah. However, (laughs) however. That's not the point of the chapter. As good as that is, and there's much to glean, and we did last week, that's not the point of the chapter for the author. In fact, he's simply been setting us up for the point of the chapter. He's set us up this whole time. Because we're thinking, this is really good. I mean, this, this is like the height of the kingdom for Israel. What's the point? What's the punchline? Well, it's verse 26 and 27. Let me read it. I'll put this on the screen if you don't have it. However, there's always a however, isn't there, in the book? I'm so tired of these howevers. However, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger burned against Judah. Because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And Yahweh, the Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my sight as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen, and the temple of which I said, my name shall be there. Really? Our heart sinks again. The author has set us up in one way. All this detail of his thorough reformation. No king like him. And then we get the however. It doesn't matter. What a downer. It really doesn't matter. It will not save Judah. (laughs) Now we might think as the reader that. We have reached the height of. What this kingdom should be under the son of David. The sons of David that we've been waiting for to establish his throne. That here we've reached it. We've not had a son of David who's so wholehearted in his obedience, uncompromised. There's not a negative word about him. Affecting such reformation, such thorough cleansing, keeping the Passover. So thorough is the reform and so righteous the king. Certainly he has cleaned up everything All must be forgiven, shouldn't it? That's how we think. 
if there's ever a time for God to relent, it's here. And he doesn't. The remarkable thing is that Josiah, as we saw last week, he knew this. He knew this before he embarked on any of these reforms. Which makes his reformation all the more remarkable. Remember, he was told by Huldah the prophetess last week that judgment's coming. My wrath burns against this place and it shall not be quenched. Doesn't matter. I won't do it in your lifetime. But it's coming. You can't stop it. There's nothing. He knew this the whole time. And yet he embarked on all of this reformation. So we thought on that last week. I won't repeat all of that. He thought on that. His obedience was not pragmatic, was not just what he was going to get or what was going to happen. It was simply out of a wholehearted love for Yahweh. And because it was right. right? And because God's word is good, even though it's not going to have any effect. So it's remarkable. He knew this. But then we're told it so clearly at the end. Because we might think, well, yeah, but surely after all of this reformation, surely the Lord's going to change his mind now. And we read those sobering words. And so the story of Josiah, the greatest king we've had, has a rather ignominious ending. Just look at it there, verse 20. I'll put this on the screen. It just says, now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And in his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. And King Josiah went to meet him, and Pharaoh Necho saw him and killed him at Megiddo. And his servants drove his body in a chariot from Megiddo, brought him to Jerusalem, buried him in his own tomb. Then the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, anointed him and made him king in place of his father. That's the end of his life. He's 39 years old. The author doesn't tell us why he went up. Like, what is he doing? Why did he go up to the Pharaoh up there near Megiddo and the king of Assyria? We're not told. He just, we're not told why he killed him. He saw him. He killed him. And that's it. We're not told any of it. He's dead at 39. No more reformation. And I think, the, 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 honestly, the point in the text, the flow of the text, the way the author just writes it and why he gives so little detail, is basically he needs to die so that judgment can come. So I'm killing him early because my judgment's coming. And I told him he would die without seeing it. So now he's dead. Now judgment comes. That's the point. That's the point of this whole account. Isn't that sobering? So... Here's what I think the main point of this text is in the story of the Bible as we read it. Not just good examples from Josiah, lots of good examples from Josiah. But as we think of the storyline of the Bible, here's the point, I think. The best king ever who accomplishes the best reformation ever cannot avert the just wrath of God. The best king ever, best reformation ever does not turn away the wrath of God. Do you see those words there? Verse 26. Look at them again. However, Yahweh did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger burned against Judah. 
it's burning, it's going to be unleashed, and it doesn't get turned away by all the good that Josiah does, all the reformation that he accomplishes. Under Manasseh, they had passed the point of no return. I said that a few weeks ago. It doesn't matter what happens next. They've passed the point. God's wrath is coming. And Josiah can do nothing about it. The Lord is provoked. Again, that language there. The provocations with which Manasseh provoked him. We've seen this language over and over. The Lord's judgment, his wrath, his anger is provoked by this wickedness, this gross idolatry. It's his just expression, his revulsion against evil. And it will be unleashed. So there's the sobering, almost depressing point of what is otherwise a glorious chapter. (laughs) So what do we learn? Let me give you two implications and one conclusion. Two implications, one conclusion. What do we draw from this? Here's the first implication. The king and the law are powerless to purify the idolatrous heart. The king, the best king, the Torah observant king, the embodiment of the law is unable to change the heart, to purify the idolatrous heart. The law that he is committed to, the law covenant, the Torah, the Mosaic covenant, the book of Deuteronomy is powerless to purify the idolatrous heart. Josiah cannot reverse the effects of generations of idolatry. We'll see. He's going to die and immediately, (laughs) immediately the people are back building their high places. Immediately. That's just the story all through Kings, isn't it? And this is the most thorough reform we've had in obedience to God's word. And it is very short lived because the heart is unchanged. Now, remember, Josiah embodied the very law, the covenant, Deuteronomy 6. He's a Deuteronomy 6 man. But he couldn't save the nation from judgment. The law can't. The temple that he cleanses, the priest that he'll reinstitute, the sacrifices, all the precepts cannot save ultimately. They cannot overcome They are good. All of them are good in themselves. All that they reveal. And yet powerless to overcome the idolatrous heart. We just have handfuls of glimpses of men like this by God's grace who live accordingly. But by and large, the people are idolatrous and will just continue to produce idolatry. So that's the first implication. Here's the second implication. The execution of God's wrath is certain, it's inevitable, by which he is vindicated and righteousness is restored. The execution of God's wrath, his anger that we see provoked, expressed here, is inevitable. And it's through that expression of his wrath in judgment, which God is vindicated as God and he restores right order, righteousness. Again, that's, I think, perhaps the big takeaway from this chapter. 
It's the depressing point as we read of all these reformations. And then we come to that. However, he didn't turn from the fierceness of his wrath. He told Josiah back through that prophetess. Back in chapter 22, verse 17, my wrath burns against this place and it shall not be quenched. You won't quench it. Once it's kindled, once it's set aflame, it's going to burn. That is issue and judgment. And, and you can't quench it. You can't turn it away. You can't avert it. You can't propitiate it. He's provoked to anger. It's almost as if there is a divine necessity. Not God is obligated to something outside himself, but within himself. A necessity of his very justice, of his commitment to the glory of his name, the vindication of his name. That evil, idolatry, always provokes him to this revulsion because he is holy. It is his response, and it will issue in judgment. That's what the chapter teaches. Judah will face judgment. Again, that's sobering. It's depressing. So here's the conclusion. And the conclusion is always where we need to end. Because Jesus told us that's what this is about. This story is about me. So, the conclusion, Jesus, he's like Josiah, yet much, much better. <laughs> much better. See how the story is always going here? We say this every Sunday, I know. And we should glory in it. How much better Jesus is than the best. <laughs> the Old Testament has the offer. Josiah foreshadows Jesus as the king who embodies the heart of Torah. Torah is just the Hebrew word for law. That's the heart of it. It's expressed in Deuteronomy 6. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Josiah is that man and he foreshadows Jesus, the king, who also embodies that. Who loved his father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Who lived without sin, greater than Josiah. Josiah's faithful stand here, and he does take a faithful stand against idolatry and purges it. Again, it just foreshadows Jesus' stand as he comes. Do you remember that scene? In fact, I read it this morning just in my Bible reading, Luke 4, as Jesus begins that public ministry and he enters into the wilderness and he is faced with temptation, the temptation to idolatry. From the evil one himself, after 40 days of fasting and praying. What strong temptation that would have been. And like Josiah, he meets it. And he responds, and he responds every time. And he quotes every time. Do you know what book he quotes every time? Do you know it? Deuteronomy. It was just in his bones. <laughs> Deuteronomy. In fact, twice, Deuteronomy 6. He's just like that. He embodies it. It's how he lived. He is the son of David, just like this son of David, who brings judgment against idolatry. We see little glimpses of that as he cleanses the temple twice, beginning and end of his ministry. 
that kind of reformation. But, oh, his judgment is so much greater than just cleansing forms, outward forms. That's what Josiah did. Josiah could clean up the outward forms and could never touch the heart. But Jesus is so much greater. So much beyond Josiah. He's the king we need. So the last point I just end with. Jesus did what the law and Josiah could never do. Secure final atonement and new life. A new covenant. He did what the law, what Josiah, what no king could ever do. They could bring outward reform. Jesus could bring complete reform. It's not just that Jesus is a little bit better Josiah. It's not even that Jesus just came and kept the law perfectly for us. He did keep the law perfectly. It's not just that he came and kept it and said, here's a good example for you. It's that he came to do what the law could never do. And he inaugurates a new covenant. Remember I said that that execution of God's fierce wrath that we see there in our story. It is inevitable. It will be executed. And here it is spent on his son. Something Josiah could never do. He comes as a king, but he comes as a savior. He comes as a substitute. He comes as one of us. He comes to represent us in a way that Josiah could not. Yes, he comes as a king and he comes to judge, but oh, how that judgment is not what we think. Not like Josiah destroying everything, but on a cross where judgment falls on him. That fierce wrath of God being spent on his own son, our king and our substitute, so that God's God is vindicated. His name is glorified. He is seen as God. Righteousness is restored and we are forgiven. Atonement is made. Perfect atonement. The things Josiah couldn't do is he couldn't change the idolater's heart. And he couldn't provide atonement. Those are the things that Jesus does. He provides atonement perfectly as our substitute on the cross. And in doing so, he inaugurates a new, better covenant than that old covenant. A covenant where that very law, the heart of Deuteronomy, is written right on the heart by the Spirit. Not by the old letter, but by the Spirit. And we are granted a newness of life and the overcoming of an idolatrous heart. That's what's ours in Christ. That's what this story is about. Ultimately, that's where it's pointing. That's why Jesus said all of it is about me. Hmm. Do you know him? Do you treasure him? All your sin is gone. That fierceness of the wrath of God, you will not face. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Never brought up again. It is gone. Because it is spent on Christ. If you struggle with that, you struggle with that. Can he really forgive me? Could it really be gone? Again, look to the cross. Don't diminish the cross. It was spent there, completely there. And he's been raised to newness of life, as we've read. To guarantee it is finished and our life is new. And what does it call forth from us? Doesn't it call for just a total response to our God and Father 
of one's whole heart and soul and mind and strength. To live out of this newness of life for him. Do you know him? Do you treasure him? Let's pray this morning and then we'll finish. Oh, Father, we're amazed just at the greatness of your plan and your wisdom and your gift. As we have sung this morning many times that you loved us and gave your son to be that wrath averting sacrifice. You, your wrath was turned away and it was turned to your son and spent fully there. He is our refuge. He's our king. And you've granted us newness of life. May we walk today not like we were, but may we walk in newness of life and wholehearted love for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.